Figured it out? Yeah. Okay, very good. So this morning I'd like to uh, continue from some of the uh, explorations that we did in the uh, three weeks when I was last here, which was exploring the theme of the shadow. Do you remember that? We had a, for those who weren't here, we worked with the theme of uh, practicing with the shadow. The shadow understood as that which is uh, typically unconscious or semi-conscious, which doesn't fit our self-image either the self-image of a person or a group or of a whole country. And we looked at that as an important uh, area to practice that could really be very illuminating for places to, to, to look. And one of the themes which came up in our uh, exploration was the theme of, um, of, of anger as being an area that for many of us is challenging in our lives and that is connected often to a lot of what we might call shadow phenomena. And so I thought to take uh, two mornings on the theme of practicing with anger. So people don't look overly angry this morning. (laughs) And I'm not intending to have you leave angry. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's actually a very uh, crucial issue and one that can be very uh, confusing in our lives and in our, our practice. And uh, to be honest, it's actually one of the main areas for which there are questions that come to me and to many other people taking this role of teaching meditation or doing Dharma teaching or doing retreats. In fact, Uh, how we understand and work with anger is definitely on the top five list. Along with judgments and relationships. Do they go together, those three? (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) But it's actually, people ask many more questions about anger than they do about enlightenment. Or samadhi, or even death. So I I think that the questions are asked both because uh, anger is challenging energy, but also because I think there's quite a bit of um, confusion about what anger is and how we practice with it. Uh, One psychologist who wrote a book on anger named Carol uh, Tavris said that uh, anger may be the emotion, as she was talking about Western culture, about which there is the most confusion of any emotion in our human repertoire. And so what I'd like to do is, this morning, is to look at some of the reasons why anger is confusing for many of us, maybe not for all of us, and to um, then point, second part would be how, to, how we might practice with anger, how we might work with anger when it, when it arises, when it comes up. And I think that's, it's actually a very, very crucial issue for having uh, relationships be alive, for having our own um, being be connected with certain vital energy. Because what I'm going to suggest is that uh, anger can be destructive, obviously. It can lead to uh, tremendous suffering. But it also can sometimes hold uh, insight and important energy, such as connected with fairness or justice or uh, what's right in a relationship or at work or in a society and that the skillful use of anger can be very, very key to leading a good life and to going deeply in ourselves and helping to bring about really a better world. That how we can be skillful with anger is actually very, very important. 
Martin Luther King talked about his work as the constructive channeling of anger and the avoidance of what he called the dead end of the destructive expression of anger. So that will be the, the perspective that I'll try to bring out. But first I want to talk some about why we are confused about anger. And I think there are a number of different reasons why anger can be very confusing. So I'll, I'll name maybe four or five, five of them. One of, the, one of the, the main ones is that we hear very conflicting messages about anger. That's why that psychologist said that it perhaps may be the most confusing emotion in our experience. And so, for example, uh, we often hear, if we're Buddhist practitioners, that anger is problematic, that anger is uh, something negative. And I thought I'd read uh, two quotations from the Buddhist tradition expressing that view. We often hear, if you're angry, you're basically deluded and engaging in unwholesome behavior. Anyone heard something like that? that, that mess- Raise your hand if you've heard something like that message. Um, so here are two quotations. Um, one is from a, um, a Thai monk who was participating in an interfaith gathering uh, Christian Buddhist dialogue. And he said this, anger can be compared to a snake, the poisonous cobra. We should not welcome it into our small house. When anger becomes the master, the body is burning because the mind is burning. That is why the world is crying today. It is burning from anger. So we need to get rid of this anger to let go of the anger. One view. We may hear that a lot. From the 8th century, famous passage from Shantideva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. He says, this is uh, one of the great books from the 8th century of the tradition. He says, whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating the Buddhas and generosity that have been amassed over a thousand eons, will be all destroyed in one moment of anger. (laughs) It's a strong statement. Hope you'd be careful if you're getting angry about the statement. and so those are, those are two statements from um, more traditional Buddhists. So here are some from a little bit, a little less traditional uh, Buddhist. Um, one is from uh, Jack Kornfield, actually. And he speaks a little more positively of anger. We can find gold, he says, in the judgment and anger we have, for within them is the valuing of justice and integrity. When we work with anger, it can be changed into a valuable medicine. Transformed, our anger and judgment give us clarity to see what is skillful, what needs to be done, what limits need to be set. They are the seeds of discriminating wisdom and a knowing of order and harmony. And uh, a second passage is from, let me see where this is. Um, The second passage is from Bell Hooks, some of you know, a Buddhist practitioner, uh, a a writer. And let me see where I have this. Well, I know it's in here. Well, I'm not finding it, but I'll paraphrase it. Uh, although I would love to find it because it's a good, let's see. Thank you for your patience. Um, this is from a book she wrote called Killing Rage. 
Ending Racism. She's an African-American writer. She wrote, confronting my rage, witnessing the way it moved me to grow and change, I understood intimately that it had the potential not only to destroy, but also to construct. Then and now I understand rage to be a necessary aspect of resistance struggle. Rage can act as a catalyst inspiring courageous action. She talks about a constructive healing rage. So that can be confusing, can't it? We hear uh, different passages, different people offering different views, and the same disparity of views can be found throughout Western culture. You can find uh, a passage, for example, um, you can find passages in the Hebrew Bible where it said, God loves one who never gets angry. And then you can also find the Jewish prophets full of anger at injustice. And you can find, uh, there's a beautiful book on the Jewish prophets by Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he has a whole chapter called The Mystery of God's Wrath. Because God gets angry and he says, anger too is a form of his presence in history. This is the grandeur of God's compassion as proclaimed by the prophets. It is a love that transcends the most intense anger. So there's a sense that anger can coexist with, uh, with love. So, so we have that mix. We have in the Christian tradition, we have the sense the anger is named one of the seven deadly sins. And we could say, you know, I could say anger, eh, bad. And then we have also, there's a lot of talk about how it's appropriate to have anger at injustice. So you can maybe feel right here this morning a little bit of whiplash, right? Back and forth, like what's right? You know, we get the message anger is questionable, but then there are certain kinds of anger which are appropriate. So I think that is very much a reason why we can be uh, confused about anger. In the Buddhist context, there's a second reason why uh, anger can be confusing. Or we hear a passage like, one moment of anger destroys all the good works of a thousand eons. And when we actually look, and this is something that I've been benefited by, I, I had a student who wrote a 450-page dissertation on anger. So mm -hmm. this was about 10 years ago. I got really interested in anger working with him. His name is Robert <coughs> Masters, and he wrote a, he's written a wonderful book on it. He lives in Vancouver. And uh, we look carefully at the Buddhist uh, words for anger in the Asian languages. And we found that actually that the connotations of the words that are translated as anger have very different connotations than the Western words for anger. That they're way closer to hatred. So that when we read about anger in Buddhist text, it probably shouldn't be translated as anger. It's a big source of confusion. It's way closer to hatred. People brought this to the attention of the Dalai Lama, and he said, we shouldn't translate all these words from Tibetan or Sanskrit or whatever as anger if we want to express something only negative. Because in Western tradition, anger sometimes has positive connotations. In, Eastern, in the Eastern languages, it's way closer to hatred. Whereas in Western languages, anger can coexist with love. So we would say that um, a mother can see a child rush out into the street and can be angry, but it can be connected with love. That would not make sense in the Asian uh, connotations of the word. So that's another reason for confusion. Um, other reasons for confusion are that we may uh, grow up and be in a cultural setting where anger is marginalized or not encouraged. We may tend to want to, we may tend to grow up with conditioning that leads us to suppress our anger. Has anyone done, grown up like that? <laughs> I think women particularly. Women particularly, yeah. Yeah, women particularly, um, anger is not encouraged, right? Or it's like, can you learn to be a nice person, right? And uh, at some cost, there's a lot of documentation on the relationship between the suppression of anger in women and depression. 
it's quite a lot of literature on that. And, and so many of us grew up learning to suppress anger very much in the culture. I think tends to come from Northern European culture, Eastern European, Southern European, very different. Other cultures quite different, indigenous. Uh, many Asian cultures uh, tends also to be um, anger is, cannot be publicly expressed in, in many settings. And so we have this personal conditioning about anger, and in a way it can connect with the confusion in Buddhist settings. And we can think that we're being spiritual because we suppress our anger. So it's that, there's a lot here. There's a lot of reason for that kind of confusion. So it's helpful to know that, that we may feel like we're getting mixed messages in relation to anger. And so one suggestion really is to see if we can look at anger freshly using the tools of mindfulness. Can we look at our conditioning and can we work with it? And I'm going to suggest that a few guidelines can make sense, some sense as of why there's so much confusion about anger and point towards ways of practicing with anger. Um, one guideline is that there, there's a very great difference between having anger occur and how we act on it. And this becomes a primary guideline for our practice. In other words, we can have anger appear and sometimes the, um, the fear about anger is that anger automatically leads to harmful behavior. Right? That's, the, that's the concern. If we read a lot of the text, that's the idea. If you're angry, you're almost necessarily going to act destructively. But one of the keys for practice is that we can actually be with anger and say, I'm really angry now. I will not act on it. You know, I will wait a moment or at least a moment, I will wait a day to talk, to have this discussion with my friend until I'm more grounded. That becomes a primary guideline. It also makes some sense of, how, of why people are so fearful of anger because obviously it is tremendously destructive at times. No doubt about that. But again, I'm going to give the viewpoint that anger potentially carries important energy and important uh, insight in the best of circumstances, you know, for example, about issues of fairness or justice or, you know, not keeping an agreement or something like that, there can be very important information in, in terms of the anger. And that anger becomes this very beautiful, powerful area to work on because in the long run what we can do is we can see what part of our anger is petty and reactive and self-centered and what part carries some important intelligence? And we can, uh, what part just wants to react and almost harm the other? And what part carries something important? And the, the meditative and uh, maybe more psychological work with anger is to see in our own anger how we can distinguish and separate out the really reactive part that just wants to lash out from, we might say, the wisdom of anger and sometimes the moral clarity of anger. So that's hard because it all kind of comes together often in one package, doesn't it? When we have anger, it all comes together. Uh, sometimes the wanting to lash out is connected with the moral clarity. <laughs> you know, you did me wrong, therefore you deserve to die. <laughs> something like that in, in our own versions, right? Or, you did me wrong, therefore you are the worst person on the earth for this particular day. You know, something like that. Or your, or your own version of that. <coughs> and I think that having the capability of separating out what we can call the reactivity, which is the kind of the compulsive pushing away, making of an enemy, making of an opposition, the ability to separate that reactivity from what's valuable and what's helpful in the anger, I, as I said, I think is key to healthy relationships, healthy organizations, and healthy society. And we have a way to go probably with all of those. Because in part, we don't know how to do that so well. We don't necessarily have the, um, the guidance on this theme. 
So I thought I would um, move towards some further guidelines for working with uh, anger by asking us right now to reflect on a time maybe in the last day or two or maybe the last week when there was anger present in your own experience and just go within and bring a situation or two to mind. And if there is anyone here who didn't get angry in the last week, you can maybe come up and teach. (laughs) Or maybe next week. But uh, reflect, and it could be, it doesn't have to be full-fledged rage, it could just be significant irritation. So bring to mind, this is just for yourself, bring to mind a situation in which there was anger or significant irritation. And bring the situation to mind, bring the specifics of the situation, get a sense of what it felt like from the inside. What was your body like? You can even live, bring the situation to mind as if it was happening right now. What was your body experiencing? What were the emotions like? What was your mind doing? How did you act? So just to take a minute or two to to let that um, reliving occur. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about a time when I was angry all day long for about 10 days in a row. I may not look like the kind of person who gets angry for such a long time, but it happened. And it actually was a really important learning experience. And what's more, I was on retreat. I was on a 10-day meditation retreat designed to cultivate peace and calm. And I was angry for 10 days in a row. Um, I actually write about this some in the, in, uh, in the book that I published about two years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life. And I, I actually went out during the break and I thought some people might be interested. So I brought a few copies of my book in here, uh, which you can take a look at. And there's a whole chapter on working with anger. And what uh, I was, I was, I had just uh, newly come to California. I had been living in Kentucky and rural Ohio for seven years, and I had come to um, California. And I had been very interested in my meditation and, and really making it real on an everyday level. What does meditation mean in daily life and the kind of lives we're li- leading? And what? Because I had to ask, like, what does it mean in Kentucky? What does meditation mean in daily life? You know, and I was, I was actually happy to be there. I had lived on the East Coast before that and been around something. I'd lived in the Boston area for a number of years and was around kind of sophisticated people interested in meditation, kind of like here. You're all sophisticated people interested in meditation, mostly. And um, I had just come from living elsewhere and I had been very interested in daily life practice. And I went to this retreat, which are kind of just like the retreats we teach here, more or less. And I had gone to a number of them in the past. But for this particular retreat, I think it was the timing, I got really angry because I said, these retreats are just like we're monks or nuns. We're just meditating all the time. We're in silence all the time. This doesn't have anything to do with our daily life, or you know, or not quite so extreme. But I was saying, we're, why don't we focus on making our, make the connection with our daily lives? And I wasn't seeing it, you know, and I was very, I, I was getting angry about it. And it was kind of interesting because I'd gone to the same retreats a number of times. I hadn't got angry there. 
But so for whatever reason, I was getting angry. I was really angry. And um, uh, Jack Kornfield was one of the teachers, so I talked with him. And he said, you know, I have some sympathy with the content of your anger. You know, I have some sympathy with that. Um, but, you know, we're not going to change the format of the retreat to please you. <laughs> and your choice is you can either go home or you can stay at the retreat and if you're angry, you can work with your anger. And I chose the latter and, and my anger stayed for 10 days. <laughs> and that was kind of the content of it. And, and I, he said, he gave me some instructions. He said, pay attention to your anger, bring mindfulness to your anger. Watch it. He gave me a technique. He said, at the end of every sitting and walking, I want you to take notes on what you've experienced. Really uh, see what you've experienced. Take notes on it. And then, you know, we'll meet again every two days and you can tell me what you found. And so I took notes. And he also said, notice where the anger moves to. Notice how the anger arises and passes away, not just to pay attention only to the anger, but notice it arising. Notice if it shifts to something else, if it moves. So pay attention uh, to that. And so I was, I stayed angry. The content stayed, you know, pretty intense for me for 10 days, about 18 hours a day. This is a true story. And, and I did that practice and I took notes. And it was pretty interesting, you know. Um, um, it was fascinating. It was amazing. I really I studied anger like I had never studied it before. I'd never been angry for so long, and I had never really studied it that closely for a sustained period of time. It was like being in a laboratory, and I found a lot of things that were really, really interesting. You know, that were important for me. I, there was, you know, I, I studied how my body was. Body went through all sorts of stuff with the anger. You know, sometimes it was burning. Sometimes there was nausea, all sorts of different body states. <coughs> uh, one thing I discovered that I felt was very important was I found that there were all sorts of different kinds of anger. There wasn't one kind of anger. There was sometimes this, this uh, almost like uh, childlike just irritation and feeling, you know, you know, I'm not getting what I want, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, you know, they're bad, blah, 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 you know, very, kind of very young. Other times, I would be with the anger and I would stay with it and the anger would sometimes shift into sadness. There would sometimes be something underneath the anger that I could feel. It would go into sadness. It would be like the content of the sadness would be, um, I don't feel like I can have a voice here. I have something important. I have these years of looking at daily life and this is important. I don't feel I have a voice and I'm sad. I feel lonely. I feel isolated and so forth. And that was sometimes, so I could do sadness. Sometimes I would stay with the sadness and it would turn into love. You know, part of that, for me, that kind of experiential showing that anger can be connected with love. That anger can come out of care. And the, my love was connected with the content of it was, I care about this community. This is important. I wanted to listen to this, you know, something like that. And so sometimes I would be with the love and the love would go and the anger kept on happening. So I would go through this process a lot. I would be with the anger and then touch it a little more deeply and there'd be sadness and then I would move to love and I would go back to anger and so forth. Sometimes I would, be, I would have an anger that felt like it would be, it was that of um, cosmic wrath. Kind of cool. <laughs> would be where like, uh, I, almost like I was a prophetic figure just announcing the total truth and it would come with this deep, kind of deep voice like, they can do what they want but in the end cosmic justice will win and you better, and there will be consequences so watch out, <laughs> you know. And, but it was for me very helpful to see that there are these different flavors of anger. It was not one kind. And I think this was key because a lot of those confusing quotations or the confusion that could have been engendered by the quotations might suggest that there are different kinds of anger. 
there's a destructive anger, there's a petty anger, there is a reactive anger, there's a self-centered anger, but there can be anger that comes out of love or care. You know, I think a lot of the anger linked with justice or lack of fairness or, you know, like you're in a close relationship and someone doesn't keep an agreement and you can be really angry and it might be coming from where? From really wanting to have us have a close relationship and this is important, you know. So, and what's crucial that we can do in a meditative way is that we can actually, know, when we can be mindful and stay with the anger for a while, we can sometimes touch that sadness or that love and really know where we're coming from. Otherwise, we get just wrapped up in the more reactive anger. And so these practices are important. So this was, for me, a very a crucial experience. It helped me for myself to clarify what some of the practices are. And I just want to really name, I think, uh, three practices uh, today. And then next time I'll work a little more with the practices. And here today I'm just focusing on the more inner practices that we can do with our own anger. I think there's a whole set of ways that we can look at anger and say, what's a skillful way to respond to someone else? Or what's a skillful way to respond to someone else's anger? Or what's a skillful way, if I'm angry, for me to communicate? And that's a whole important area. I'm going to focus a little more on that next time. Today I just want to mention three ways of really exploring and practicing with anger. Pretty simple ways. They're basically uh, mindfulness, a few variants of mindfulness. Secondly, um, reflection, different kinds of reflection that we can do. And thirdly, working more with the heart, with loving kindness and forgiveness. So those are the kind of three practice areas. I'll say a little bit about all three and invite us, if you ever, if you notice yourself angry, some of you may have be angry about the talk. You may have said, I, wanna, I wanted an uplifting talk about peace and wisdom and love, and I got anger. I'm angry about it. So, so if, you, if that's the case, you know, I'll, I'll, you know what to do. <laughs> so, um, so first, the mindfulness practice. It's really just to the different aspects of mindfulness we're familiar with. And we can take working with anger as like a... Uh, significant example about how to work with any difficult emotion or thought, which is such a crucial part of our practice, working with difficult thoughts and emotions. So the practices that we do here are very similar for what we might do if there was fear or if there is strong (coughs) negative judgment of self or other or if there is grief or so forth. A lot of the practices are quite similar. So the first is mindfulness. It's first of all to name it that it's happening. Name, I am angry. Very, very crucial. A big part of the practice. When we, when we name what's happening, in a sense, we break the trance. We are not so locked in to whatever we're experiencing. So just naming, I am angry, very, very helpful. You're in a relationship, just to name, you are angry, or I am angry, or there's anger here, can really be helpful because in a way it helps us to notice it's happening and summon our resources and help us be skillful. So just naming there is anger to oneself can be very helpful. We can then also explore the anger. That's another aspect of mindfulness, to start to notice um, what is it like in the body? How does the mind work? How does my anger work? Do I tend to form thoughts in which the other becomes bad and I'm good? Very common with anger. How does, how does your mind work with anger? What's your, tendency, what's your tendency in terms of behavior? Just to notice this, to explore. You get angry in a situation and at work, let's say. Take a bathroom break and do mindfulness of anger in the bathroom for five minutes. That's an old technique passed on by the Buddha. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> um, but really, significant is when you're feeling yourself like the emotion is strong and hard to act, take a break. Very, very helpful. Explore the anger. See what it's like. Stay with it. See if there's something beneath the anger. Sometimes you can just almost ask a question. Is there something beneath my anger right now? 
And sometimes you can feel it not to be intellectual about it, but to notice that there's something else there. This is something we can do when there are any repetitive thoughts or any repetitive emotions. What's there? You can just with mindfulness sometimes just allow it to, to, to shift into whatever it shifts, like my experience on the retreat. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to figure out what was beneath it, but just staying with it, uh, something emerged, something surfaced that, that let me know that there was something else there. And incredibly helpful. I'm angry with someone close to me. If I can be in touch with the love that's there, it totally changes how I'm going to respond. And I can still keep the content of my anger, but it tends to make me have a very different response than if I'm caught in the anger and reactive. Um, so we can work, and over time, when we study our anger, we can start to see our patterns. Here's what tends to make me angry. can start to see the stimulus and reaction uh, patterns linked with our anger. I can start to see, oh, I tend to get angry when, let's say, someone doesn't listen to me or someone doesn't keep an agreement. That tends, in other words, what are your individual uh, patterns? What tends to, as it were, trigger you and, and lead to anger? Very, very crucial. Those are three aspects of mindfulness. Just naming that it's there, exploring the experience in the moment, and then looking for patterns. Each of them very, very helpful. So in terms of reflections, second form of practice, those can be very, very uh, simple. But they can, this is more using... Uh, language and reflection to help us see something differently. So I'm angry with myself or I'm angry in a, let's say I'm angry in a work context and I get in some angry interaction with someone, I can use the reflection and, and, and say, what's my role? What's my responsibility? Very obvious, right? Because the tendency in reactive anger is to form a polarization between good me, typically, and bad you. Has anyone else experienced that? <laughs> okay, a few of us. So it's very, it's very common, and we can do reflections which help us to, in a way, have a broader perspective, to see more of the interdependence. Again, it doesn't mean that the other person isn't significantly responsible for something or doesn't need to take responsibility. I'm not at all saying that. But in any given situation, there's always a need for us to do inner work with anger even if the other person has done something really horrendous. Because I, you know, as a practitioner, I'm interested in where I'm reactive. Because where I'm reactive, I can't be loving and compassionate and wise, more or less. And even if there's something really egregious that's been done, I still want to come back to balance so I can be wise with the situation and compassionate. That's a really important point. And the reflections can be helpful for that. They can say, What's my role in this? That's one question. Another question we can ask is, can I see this as happening because of causes and conditions? This is to take a wider view. Let's say another person does something uh, very unskillful. Can I have some wide view and see the causes and conditions which led to this person's behavior? It doesn't mean to condone it, but it might mean to understand it better. You know? And then, as in the French phrase, it's often said, to understand is, in a sense, to, to understand deeply is to forgive. But forgiving doesn't mean we condone it and doesn't mean we don't respond. But it changes our, our attitude. We can also reflect on how might I respond non-reactively. So those are three reflections. What's my responsibility in the situation? How can I see this as happening because of causes and conditions? It might be to think this is this person's tendency that he grew up with or has been doing for 30 years, you know, and I'm getting angry because of this person's conditioning. You know, and maybe I can still respond, but would I get angry at a hurricane? Maybe. <laughs> but that would be not so wise, right? Would I get angry at something that's a, a natural force happening because of causes and conditions? Well, People are sometimes not so different than that. Things are happening because of histories. And the third area that we can work with is what we might call the area of heart practices. We can work with loving kindness and compassion. We can hold ourselves and our own anger and the whole situation 
with some care and some compassion. We can do loving kindness practice for ourselves. You know, it's a way sometimes, especially if we're really caught in anger in a way that's unbalancing. You know, we can really do something like loving kindness, not to get rid of the anger, but sort of to bring us back to balance. And we can have a kind of compassion for ourselves and the, and the human condition. Can really bring that, that quality of the heart to really get to that, that place of care and concern, which we can also get to uh, with mindfulness practice. And what I find is that working with these kind of uh, practices, anger can become something really, really interesting and something that we can continually work on in ways that I, I feel really can deepen our own understanding. They can take us very deep into our own being and can be really key for knowing ourselves, being able to... Um, develop more honest, authentic, and uh, trusting relationships, and ultimately help towards um, responding to uh, social injustice or to really uh, dangerous conditions like, like global warming. You know, how can you work with that? You know, there's tremendous anger that people have towards a lot of the social situation, right? How do you, I think so, very key to anyone who's working in the world is to have a way of working with anger. You know, when I've worked with activists, for example, I have found that anger and dealing with conflict may be the most um, <coughs> difficult problem that they've had. I did a, maybe I'll end with a story. About four years ago, I was invited to do a workshop at a, a conference in Berkeley called Spiritual Activism. And it was a conference that the organizers planned to have three or 400 people come and they had to close off participation at 1800. Wow. It had this tremendous draw. And I gave a workshop that came out of some of the work being that we had done with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And I just started by asking, what are the challenges that you have as either people who are trying to be spiritual activists or people who have been doing that for a while, what's the greatest challenge that you have? And the, greatest, the one that was named the most was working with anger. And a lot of it was anger towards their co-workers. People took, had so much anger, and it was, some of it was anger that was from the society, but they turned it against their co-workers. A lot of conflicts in organizations. So they found that what I most need to be a better spiritual activist was to have a mature, more mature way of working with anger. So I think it's actually a very uh, powerful, significant area, and I invite us if you feel called in this way for the next week to explore some of these practices and really look at anger or significant irritation uh, using some of these tools in the next week and come back and share some stories. So I'll stop there and just invite uh, uh, maybe about a minute of sitting quietly and then we can have some discussion. Any questions or reflections? Please, yeah. Um, so there, there, with anger, there's this issue of if, if you were raised in a household where your parents were destructive or toxic, yeah. then you as a child carry this anger and rage with you. Yeah. And then as, as an adult, you are always like cycling back, spiraling back to work on it because that's yeah. how it goes. And as you try to balance the anger and forgiveness, how do you, I mean, can forgiveness and anger go together? Yeah. How do you? So the, the question is, if a person was raised in a household where there was a lot of anger, and probably that describes a certain number here, and that becomes kind of part of the background, and you're always, in a way, uh, what, coming back to feeling angry and spiral back to the, the wound. You know, how the wound, you yeah. You're trying to heal this anger, rage wound, because yeah. it's ongoing, pervasive. Yeah. yeah. 
So there's a kind of a, a wound of having, what, been treated in a certain way and feeling angry about it? That, that, that is, is a wound that we, as it were, bring to adulthood. And how to, how to um, transform that? What's the place of forgiveness? Can there be anger and forgiveness as part of the same process? And, yeah, I think, and I think that's interesting because probably some of us have that conditioning and some of us have the conditioning where the anger wasn't permitted to be very present. You know, how many people have the second kind of conditioning where there wasn't much anger in your, in your upbringing? It was sort of marginalized or not really permitted to be public. And how many have the conditioning where there was maybe too much of it? So how many had bo- some version of both? Where, right, where, where because of the power imbalance, the people in power could get angry, but you couldn't, right? Is that, is that accurate? Right, so I think, first of all, yes. Um, I think forgiveness is, is, um, is an aspiration, and oftentimes forgiveness has to go through anger, has to op- be able to open to anger. And it's more, forgiveness is more of an aspiration, essentially not to carry the past around. And so it's a direction that can really be inspiring, but it's not something that you, we say, I should be forgiving. Because as long as there's that wound, um, forgiveness can be an aspiration, and it can actually inspire you to let the anger surface and work constructively with it. What I yeah. found is, how can, if you forgive, yeah, if it, the forgiveness has to be genuine as opposed to a way of suppressing anger. And so, so um, forgiveness is, like I say, it's a direction. And in the short run, the road to forgiveness, see, as long as there's that wound, forgiveness can't sort of make believe it's not there. That would be... Uh, really not authentic. So forgiveness is a direction, so it's more or less the... but it, it's linked with the intention not to be caught by the past, not to be caught by the past wound as much as possible. And so um, there'd be different ways. We'd be really talking about how can I, uh, over time, heal that wound. You know, it's a, so a variety of ways to do that. I mean, a lot of it comes down to just really being able to touch it with understanding and kindness over a sustained period and have some understanding of why it happened and how you're taking a different course now. You know, so that's, that's a complex topic, right? But I guess the point would be that uh, forgiveness can't be manufactured and shouldn't be, I think. That... that um, on the road to forgiveness, it may be necessary to be with anger, and that's why these tools can be really helpful, because uh, uh, anger may be there much more than forgiveness, and that and that and that that's, is appropriate. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Thanks. Please, Mark, and then in the back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is about sometimes, uh, especially if we've had conditioning that we don't want to experience anger, the slightest hint of something leading to anger, may t- we may go somewhere else, right? And what are some of the places that we go? Hurt. Tears. Yeah. For a woman, anyway. Yeah. Overly nice. You may be impatient. You may be um, just crying because you, something's bothering you, but you, anger is unacceptable, right? Or it might be that you, we can be passive-aggressive, right? Sarcastic, sarcastic yeah. can be sarcastic, <coughs> we can be, um, make jokes and say, I'm not really joking. <laughs> how many can relate to that? <laughs> and so, how do... <laughs> and, and so how to, how to access it, uh, some of it, um, a few different tools. Sometimes just in the sitting, if you sit regularly, 
it will eventually surface. Yeah. Sometimes it can take, if it's deeply beneath the surface, sometimes it takes something like a retreat or something where there's a longer sustained period to open it up. You can also open it up through psychological work, you know, as, as probably many, many of us have done. In fact, for all I know, half the group here is therapists. <laughs> I don't, we haven't never done a count, but sometimes I think, isn't that true of Marin County generally? <laughs> um, um, but psychological work would have a variety of tools. You know, I mean, this came up for myself at a certain point. You know, I, at a certain point in my practice, you know, it was a while ago, but I thought that I wasn't sufficiently in touch with my emotions. And I wanted to know how to get there. And it's not so easy when you, when you um, have that thought, you know. So you can, I mean, you can try to be aware where you have some conscious way of not wanting to go somewhere. Try to be, you can try to be aware of those places. You can also deliberately, like we did in uh, the exercise, you know, using psychological work, you can deliberately go into the territory with, with, with a skilled person. Yeah. Do you have a suggestion? Yeah. I was just going to comment that instead of, for me, instead of just sitting quietly, I need to get up and physically move. Yeah. And, you know, but as an outlet. And yeah. Then Yeah. And, you know, get into meditative mode, but there's this physical need to yeah. just get out and do. I need to move. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, um, sometimes we have to move in order for the emotions to come present. I know I, I've personally worked with techniques where I did a lot of movement and, you know, um, I remember once where I was encouraged just to um, get in touch with my anger by going out into the woods with a big stick. You know, and it worked. You know, it kind of helps the, some of the physical means can help access that. You know, and I think it's, it's good to do that with some guidance. You know. <laughs> but but there are the, there's different tools. And for me, that was, you know, with the person I was working with, it was very skillful. You know, just to, uh, I was invited to go off into the woods with a big stick and think of things that made me angry. And I did that, you know, I do that a few times a day. That was after my anger retreat, so. Um, yeah, please, Nancy. Well, yeah. one tool that oh, Mark, and Mark next. Okay. okay. That I love is, um, it's modeled on Ruth Denley's Book of Qualities. Yeah. Is to actually write a feeling, whether it's anger or fear or whatever, and personify it. Mm-hmm. And really, it really helps with that disguise thing. Mm-hmm. If you get into it, it's a safe way to do it in a way where you can sort of describe what they're wearing. Something. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, because you're really asking the question of uh, access. You know, we can say, well, just be mindful, be meditative, be aware of anger, but what happens if it's not so accessible, right? And we know that it's there, and we know that it actually might be beneath the surface and actually might be influencing behavior quite a bit, but it's just not accessible. So how do we access it? And there, there are a variety of tools, you know, and maybe I can bring in one or two next week that help us to access in a, you know, in a simple way. You know, role-playing is great. Uh, you know, can use theater, can use, uh, you know, psychologists have a vast array of tools, you know. Can be, um, sometimes can use the body, like you, you were saying in the back. Can, um, you know, Yeah, do certain 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 kinds of interactive work, and so forth. Um, so that's a great question because that's that's a big one. It's, so I think we're seeing some t- somehow how uh, I think what's developing in Western meditation scenes is this integration of more psychological approaches with more meditative approaches. So we can actually use active tools to you know if you were in Tibet and you wanted to get in touch with your anger, they would say, okay, imagine this wrathful deity sitting above your head, you know, visualize the deity and then hang out with it, you know, do these different mantras and practices and then bring the energy of the deity into your body and become the wrathful deity yourself. 
We don't do that at Spirit Rock, but <laughs> but but there are all these there are all these, and that would be a way of doing it. You know, I'm not don't don't take those as instructions, please, and and go don't off. But don't don't do that at home. But, but uh, maybe uh, maybe last last comment or question. Yeah. I've been exploring anger a lot yeah. myself over the years, and the thing that I'm, I'm tending to see and learn is that anger for me is a secondary emotion. Yeah. That usually, so what I do when I find myself angry, I look underneath it yeah. to find out what threat, what vulnerability, or what feeling I don't want to feel yeah. when touched by a person or by a situation. And I find that, that very helpful, and that helps me to less respond. And sometimes, you know, the Buddha said we could be fierce. He just said, can you do it without hatred? Yeah. So that if I can find out what it, what's sparking that in me, what the vulnerability is, yeah. and not keeping me from action, but, yeah. Um, being from exactly. The yeah. The yeah. Very, very beautiful, and we can do that with ourselves. Some of the tools, like of uh, some of you know, nonviolent communication, <laughs> invites us uh, to have to start to be able to tune in to what's the underlying need. Let's say beneath a strong emotion, I have anger. What's the need there? Well, you know, you could hear from my example, beneath that anger was some sadness and then ultimately some love and wanting to connect. And so taking, a lot of psychologists do think that anger typically is, is an expression that may cover over some sense of hurt or something not really, um, some core need not being met. And so to tune into that in oneself and others, like you can, someone else is angry with you, can you tune into that person's need, underlying need? Can you tune into what's beneath the surface? That's an incredible gift if one can do that, you know, to be able to be there and not, basically not get scared and spooked by the anger. It's incredible. So it's very helpful. And then I think I like the way you formulated it at the end, and maybe it's a nice way to end the morning, is that the tool, the uh, aim here is to um, not be afraid of anger, not need to suppress it, but be able to open to it and recognize that it does carry some gifts. It can carry uh, insight. Yes, there is a deep need here that's not being met or that's being violated in some way. And, And yet there's also some reactivity. And I can work with the anger and preserve what it's telling me. Maybe be more in touch with the underlying need and then respond not by the hatred and not by the reactivity, but by um, a little more insight and more compassion that comes from actually touching my own vulnerability. That's what, like the example that I was given, if I can touch my vulnerability when I'm angry, and this is not, not so easy, but if I can touch that, like in, you know, again, a friend is... Um, doesn't keep a friend really close to me, doesn't keep an important agreement, and I get angry, but can I be in touch with how much, how important it is for me for us to keep our agreement because I really care? You know, and to be in touch with that permits action from a very different place, whether it's for a friend or for our country, you know, about injustice or something. To come from that quality of care, that's what I think Martin Luther King really is evident. He came from a lot of love, even though there was a lot of channeled anger, right? But there was, it was coming from love and from deep aspiration. And that's, I think, the direction with this. So it's, I, hope, um, I hope, you can, hope you have the sense that this is a, just a crucial area for our practice. And how many would like to look into it in the next week? Okay. <laughs> okay. And so I'll invite that. And we'll do one more week uh, related to this. And I'll focus a little bit more on interaction and speech and how we might work more outwardly as well as inwardly. So let's just sit for about 30 seconds to finish. It can be with whatever may have been helpful or what you take out of the morning. Your intentions perhaps for the next week.
And so knowing that we do this practice, not just for ourselves, but for others as well, we offer the fruits of the morning, what's been helpful or valuable. We offer it out beyond these walls, out into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings. So thanks so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.